every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona. It is 8 o'clock Saturday morning, the Outdoor Living Hour. And this is going to be a special broadcast the first Saturday of the month. We're joined by the Arizona Farm Bureau talking farm fresh commodities that are being locally harvested. Second Saturday of the month, we talk trees with certified arborist John Eisenhower. Third Saturday of the month, notes from the nursery with Jay Harper. Fourth Saturday of the month, urban farming with farmer Greg. Well, every now and then we get this magic fifth Saturday that we want to do something uh, special with, and it gives us an opportunity to bring in different perspective, different people, and you know what is more important to our way of life in the desert than our water. And we've got uh, General Manager Ted Cook of Central Arizona Project Supply joining us by phone for today to talk about our water supply. Good morning, Mr. Cook. Good morning. Glad to be here. Well, thank you, and uh, we've had CAP on with us in the past. We were very uh, blessed to get a, a helicopter tour of some of the major parts of the canal system last year, and we've just really enjoyed learning about everything CAP does and the fascinating, fascinating process of delivering water. And starting out with the, the most interesting fact to me is CAP is the biggest consumer of electricity in Arizona. That is true. Um, people think about us, they think about water, but uh, I think a lot of times it's easy to overlook the power side. And because of where our canal starts, at essentially sea level at the Colorado River in Parker, Arizona, and where it ends up south of Tucson is 3,000 feet higher. So the, the, uh, the water, the canal can take advantage of flowing downhill uh, as much as possible, but 15 times between the river and the end of the line, we have to pump it up and let it start going, flowing down again. And you know what really fascinates me about all that is how all the utilities work together because what do all the utility companies do to generate electricity? They steam the gas, the, the water. <laughs> they, so it's like you need both. <laughs> so There is what, a water what comes electricity first? nexus for sure. So we're, we're channeling water. We've got 15 times we raise it in elevation. The, the whole canal length is 336 miles. And How much water volume are we allowed to pump out of the river? Well, the, the CAP, first of all, Arizona has a apportionment of 2.8 million acre-feet um, every year from the Colorado River, and that's a, that's a share of the 7.5 million acre-feet that California, Nevada, and, and uh, Arizona share. Uh, CAP has a, uh, um, called an unquantified contract, which means that uh, we are allowed to take uh, any water that is unused by a senior contractor off of off of the river. So, uh, in pre in practical terms, what that means is that CAP takes roughly half of of Arizona's entitlement off the river, about a million and a half acre feet, or a little bit less than that. And that's a and that's about a half a trillion gallons a year. <laughs> that's what I wanted to know: a half a trillion gallons half a, a year. Trillion gallons, yeah. And a big part of this. CAP system is is having that water ready. I mean, I can't tell you a time in my life that I've never turned on a faucet and not had water. You know, there's been times the power's been out, 
not, usually not very long, but I've never had an instance where I didn't have water supplied to my house. Now, meeting that demand is is pretty tricky, and y'all have a – and I didn't realize until recently the intricate role Lake Pleasant plays in this water delivery system. Right. Lake Pleasant, we refer to that as our regulatory storage. Uh, regulatory coming from regulate rather than regulation, meaning that we use the lake to even out uh, our deliveries during the year. So uh, right about now, actually probably about a month ago, this is our, our peak season for putting water into the lake. So during the fall and the winter, we are pumping off the Colorado River and we're making deliveries, but we're also putting water into the lake. And then right around April time frame, we start... We're still pumping off the river, but we start releasing water from Lake Pleasant as well to meet the higher spring and summer demand. So we're now taking water out of the lake um, through roughly April through October. And then, and then we reverse course and start putting water back in the lake during the other six months. And the majority of the people y'all deliver water to is past that point. That, that's right. Um, that's right. There, there are deliveries the west of Lake Pleasant, but most of our deliveries are south of Lake Pleasant. The, the canal runs roughly east and west from the river to, to Lake Pleasant north of Phoenix and then takes a right turn and begins to go south. And, of course, south of Lake Pleasant, we have Phoenix. We have uh, the other uh, metro area cities. Uh, we have the agricultural area in Pinal County and then on into Pima County and the city of Tucson and the other municipal users there. And from the time a drop of water is pumped out of Mark Wilmer Station, and let's say that drop makes its way all the way to the end of the canal, how long is that trip? It is, it is, not, that, it is not that long. The water is moving pretty fast. I wish I had, and I should have, uh, an exact number there. It is, it is measured in days uh, rather than weeks or months. Uh, because it's, it's managed pretty tightly. The canal is, is uh, uh, full all the time, so we carefully set our pumping schedule and our use of Lake Pleasant, uh, along with the orders that we receive from our customers that are, that are updated daily, if necessary, to keep the canal at just the right level so that we have a full canal ready to make the deliveries when uh, all of the customers open up their turnout and want, and want to take delivery. But and that, if you wanted to measure a drop from being pumped off the river to being um, delivered to the last customer on the canal, that would be just a matter of a few days. And it's really fascinating that y'all are able to keep that constantly full and moving because that is the one thing every time you drive by the CAP, that water level is almost identical all the time. You never see highs and lows like you do. And, and keeping that running and full and not overflowing at the end or not running out somewhere in the past is, is absolutely fascinating that y'all are able to execute that in, in, in a dry Arizona environment. Well, in addition to the 15 pumping stations that I mentioned earlier, there are several dozen what we call check structures. They're basically big gates that come up and down uh, along the canal that allow us to regulate the flow. So there's lots of control points to keep to keep the uh, the lake, uh, or I'm sorry, the the canal level at a consistent level, uh, turning pumps on and off, uh, raising and lowering gates, things like that helps us to keep that canal full and ready for delivery. 
And I know looking at it from a bigger picture and where the water comes from in the Colorado, that snow melt coming off of the Rocky Mountains this time of year, filling up our reservoirs and dams. What, what's our snowpack outlook look like for the river? Well, we've passed the peak snow snowpack season. Say that fast five times. <laughs> uh, we've passed the, the peak, peak runoff season. <laughs> season. Uh, this year we had a, an average snowfall, which we were happy to see because uh, there, the last last year was a really good year. This year was an average year. So we'll take average. And we've had some years that have been pretty lousy. Uh, but because it has been very dry uh, in the in the Upper Colorado River Basin um, this spring so far, we're only going to get about a sixty percent of normal runoff into Lake Powell. Um, it's not just an open channel from uh, the Colorado River because there's two big reservoirs, uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, that that are in between. And the way that those two reservoirs operate, there's a there's a fixed quantity that's determined every year based on some pretty complicated rules that determines what will be released out of Lake Powell into Lake Mead. So even though a single year may be a really great year or a really lousy year, um, uh, there's a pretty consistent flow coming from the upper basin Lake Powell into Lake Mead. So we will get this year a normal release out of Lake Powell. That's after several years of, of a little bit more than normal release out of Lake Powell. Uh, but Lake Mead is, is staying pretty consistent even, and that's the reason for those reservoirs, is to keep the flow in the, in the river pretty consistent from year to year, um, despite what's going on hydrologically with snowfall. It's such a fascinating, uh, I mean, the whole the history of the canal system and how the state's allocation and the court battles that went on to, to establish all of this and uh, that thinking and looking at it, uh, y'all are at 35 year anniversary of completion of the canal because, you know, it, it still took how many years to build? Well, approximately 20, 25 years to build uh, from beginning to end. Uh, let's see, I think the ground was broken in 1973 and the, and the canal was, substantially complete in 1995 so roughly 20 years <laughs> that, that that's why the name they've got project in their name essentially Arizona project that's a project and the amount of preventative maintenance that y'all put into it as well as is, is phenomenal um, you know that's one thing that's really impressed me in lear learning about our Arizona utilities is the amount of redundancies and backups that happen because you know, that power and that water supply is extremely critical to our quality of life here, especially as we move into the summer months. I mean, it, it, y'all recognize the important role you have and the amount of uh, backups you have to make sure you can meet that is it, extremely impressive. And it, re it really shows you just how well uh, and, and sustainable our lifestyle is here because of of our utilities. We've got General Manager Ted Cook of Central Arizona Project Canal on the line with us. We've got another segment with him coming up after this. We're talking about Arizona's water supply and CAP's role in doing that and delivering water from the snow melt off of the Rockies, 336 miles from the pumping station at Mark Wilmer down into Tucson, Arizona. 336 mile canal that supplies water to Arizona. Oh, really? 
This time of year is a pair of shades, an ice cold beer, and a place to sit somewhere near water. If you're just joining us, we're joined by General Manager Ted Cook of Central Arizona Project Canal, the CAP system. Uh, that delivers water. You said how many trillion gallons of water? Half a trillion. Half, half a trillion gallons of water per year. So 500 billion gallons of water delivered. And amazingly enough, that's only what, about 35% of the water use in Arizona? That's, that's approximately correct, yeah. There's obviously a lot of moving parts and a lot of people involved. Once you water is pumped out of the canal, you know, you've got a lot of additional uh, entities that are responsible for the next step of delivering to consumer or to ag or to business. That's right. You mentioned earlier that you turn the tap on and the water always comes out. CAP plays a prominent role in getting that Colorado River water into central and southern Arizona, but there's lots of other utilities, the municipal utilities, the agricultural irrigation district that take the water from us and, and certainly in the case of municipal deliveries to homes and businesses, it gets treated by the cities and then delivered to the, to the end customer. Lots of cooperation and handoffs that have to be made along the way to get that water from the river to someone's tap. And this is all supply side. If you're on the city grid system in, in your city sewer, there's a whole drainage side to this water that we're not going to get into. It's way too early and we're too close to breakfast to talk about that side, but there's a, a wayside of water that's just as fascinating as the supply side. And we've got a lot of great municipalities that, that work together in doing that. I talked about the, the court cases and the, the Mark Wilmer, who's the pump station named after, was one of the key attorneys and all of that. And uh, one thing I think they missed, and I don't think they could have ever foreseen this, but if, if we could have gotten in that contract that every time we get a transplant from California to Arizona, they bring like their acre foot of water per year allotment over to us. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be nice. But as you mentioned earlier, too, is that the, all of the hundred years of contracting and negotiating and laws and lawsuits and so on and so forth, it's very, very complicated. Um, but uh, requires, again, a lots of cooperation to make everything work properly. That's so, a dream, that, that people would move here and bring water with them. But they come here <laughs> because they're confident that there is water here for them. And so far, we've been able to meet that dream for people to come to Arizona and participate in this lifestyle and have, have a way for the economy to grow. And so what's next? We've got this incredible infrastructure. We didn't even talk about a lot of the engineering features that entail channeling water in a canal over 3,000 feet of elevation and uh, managing surface water that could infiltrate it. and uh, what, We've got the system. We're managing it. What's next? Well, we have to be, when we're managing water in an arid environment like we are, and I say we in, in the big sense, not just CAP, but everybody else that's involved in this in, in Arizona and in the other, other Colorado River states, We've got this precious supply that we have to manage. It has to last us a long time. There's a lot of variability in the supply that falls out of the sky every year. This is why we have the reservoirs and the, and the canal systems. And we've done a lot of work over the last few years to 
make some changes, save some water in Lake Mead, use less than we've been using um, in order to keep that supply sustainable. But that job is never done. So even though we've had a lot of success in the last several years, uh, the current operating rules that we have in place are going to expire and need to be replaced by the end of 2026. It seems like a long ways away, but it's not. <laughs> so we'll be starting on developing that next set of, we call them guidelines, uh, among the seven states that use the river and all of the folks that, that consume Colorado River water. Just to put some ideas out there that I have heard in open forums, the Mark Wilmer pumping site used to pull its energy from the Navajo coal power plant that was decommissioned. So we've got a new power source for the Mark Wilmer plant, but lining the whole canal with solar panels. The ideas and the concepts that are out there are, are so big that they're hard to even fathom. Well, some of those things could be a reality, I suppose. Even in the case of covering the CAP canal with, with solar panels, that's not feasible right now because it's cost prohibitive. And then how do you get the electricity from where it's generated along 336 miles to where the load is? It requires transmission lines. So it's just very expensive. But some of those other things, such as transporting water from one basin to another, lots of expense to do that, lots of permitting issues, lots of environmental issues. Every drop of water belongs to somebody. But we like to keep an open mind. Nearer at hand, though, is a couple of things. One is using, you mentioned earlier, the wastewater stream, using more of our wastewater stream to reclaim that and to use that as an augmentation to our supply. And then, of course, desalination, both local desalination of brackish groundwater supplies and also ocean desal. It's very expensive now, but it's cheaper than some of those other ideas that, uh, <laughs> that have been mentioned. Oh, water and, and the future of a growing world population. Ted Cook, General Manager of CAP, thanks for your time this Saturday morning. If somebody wanted to learn more about uh, Central Arizona Project Canal, your website? It is www.cap-az.com. And the weekly report y'all send out, anybody can sign up for it. I read it religiously. It's That's a fascinating right. topic, and I, and I love the articles y'all put in there. Well, thanks for the opportunity to uh, be on our show and talk to the folks. The heat was hot and the ground was dry, but the air was full of sound. Switching gears here for the second half of our Outdoor Living Hour here in this fifth Saturday of May. Uh, we're going to have a guest that was on with us earlier this year when we had another five-week month, Noel Johnson, also known as Arizona Plant Lady. And if you follow along in our home maintenance calendar, you, we have Desert Harvest as our topic for this week. And we're talking about all the things in the desert that you can grow and eat. Noel, good morning. Good morning. You know, it's, you know, it's interesting when you look out over the desert and it could seem pretty bare, pretty dry, not a lot going on, but you know, the, the desert has supported human life for over 5,000 years. Yes, it has. And one of the unique things about the Sonoran Desert is if you've had the chance to visit deserts in other parts of the world and in our country, you'll notice that there are more varied plant species in the Sonoran Desert than any other desert in the world. And the reason for this is that most deserts have one main rainy season. But here we have two. We have winter and summer. And so that provides us with a, a wider variety of plants. Yes. And what, 
makes the Sonoran Desert? There's three specific plants, correct? Well, there are three specific plants, uh, but, you know, they're, they're mixed in with, with hundreds of others. But if we look at it, you're going to see the Palo Verde trees. There are several different species, but the one that you're going to see growing most often in the desert is called a foothill or a little leaf Palo Verde. And we also have prickly pear. We have uh, barrel cactus. We have swarrows, ocotillo. We have just an abundance. So... Obviously, the saguaro, you can't eat that. It's got our Arizona state flower. It's a protected species. But what about some of If it's on your property, you can eat the fruit. If it's on the property, okay, you can eat the fruit. Very. Yes. Or if you have a friend who has several saguaro on their property, ask him if you can harvest some of the fruit. And driving around this last couple weeks, all of those fruits are about to bloom. Some of them have already started, and there's this beautiful white flower. There's going to be parts of Arizona that's just going to look like a snow-capped saguaro right in the middle of the summer, and and it's all our Arizona state flowers in bloom. It is, and it's so fun to see that. And then you'll notice uh, later in June, excuse me, and then you'll notice later in June that the fruits, um, you know, the flowers have been pollinated, and they form these little green fruits, and then the fruits burst open, and they're red, and you'll see the birds going crazy. But you can actually harvest those fruits before they split open if you have a very long pole, and you can knock them off. Once we have them knocked off, what do we do with them then? Do you just eat them, or do you use them in a salad? Do you... Uh, boil them down and make a jam? I mean, what what do you do with them at that point? Well, we want to think of these, um, it's a fruit. So once you have the green fruit, you're going to use a knife, you're going to just cut it open in the middle, and you're going to scoop out the inside. And the inside is red, and it has lots of seeds in it. Now, you can use that to create a jam, or you can dry it and make like a fruit leather out of it. You know, that's the second time I've heard fruit leather in, on this broadcast in, in as many weeks. I, I've, have you ever had fruit leather, Gary? I, I never have. Is that like a fruit <laughs> I, I roll-up? I you have. If you've had fruit roll-up, oh, that okay. is fruit leather. Okay. A fruit uh, equivalent to what we would see as a fruit roll-up. Fruit leather. Now, aside from the saguaro and uh, having an extremely long pole or tall extension ladder to get up and knock them off, uh, let, let's go to a simpler one, a prickly pear. That, that's when you don't need a ladder, and you can, out in the wild, harvest uh, the prickly pear. Yeah. Now, <laughs> to do this, you want a pair of tongs. Now, they don't have to be fancy tongs. You can you know, use kitchen tongs you know, that you use with your pasta. <laughs> and so you want an inexpensive pair of tongs because you do not want to touch the fruit. Uh, the fruit um, and most prickly pears are covered with these little tiny spines. They're called glockids, and it, they very easily dislodge into your skin. It looks like fur, but when you touch it, you'll be itching for hours. <laughs> it does not feel like fur. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no. So you want to use tongs to harvest the fruit, and it's going to um, start to turn red, and that's when you know it is ready. And, again, the, the fruit, this is probably the most popular edible uh, fruit, I think, that you find in the Sonoran Desert and probably that most people have heard of. But again, um, 
the fruit inside, it is very uh, sweet and tart, and it is red, and it is filled with uh, seeds as well. But, you know, you've got this little prickly pear fruit, and you're not allowed to touch it, so what are you going to do? So this is when you want to have a blowtorch, and, you know, they have the ones that for kitchen use, and you can just burn off those glockets very easily and then rinse off your fruit before you cut into it. And I've seen the petals for sale. Now, you can't just go out and cut the petals off, but they are edible as well if you've got a prickly pear on your own property. Yes. And, you know, you can even use the petals to garnish a really uh, a, a nice plate or a drink or something like that. And, again, the petal is going to have thousands of thorns on it as well. It, will that torch work on those longer thorns? Um, it should work. If not, you can use a knife to scrape them off. If it does not, but usually the fruit itself does not have the long thorns. It just has those little tiny ones. What, what did you call them? They're called glockets. Glockets. So G-L-O-C-H-I-D-S. <laughs> it's a fancy word you can use to impress your friends. <laughs> the glocket. And this isn't really on an edible side, but the aloe vera plants. I mean, if you have one of those by itself and you get a sunburn, just cutting off an arm of that, splicing it open and rubbing it straight onto your skin works 10 times better than any aloe lotion you could buy in the store. It does, but, you know, there's several kinds of aloe, and only one species is suitable for that to work. Other ones don't work that way. So the species you want is aloe vera or aloe barbadensis, and it's a larger aloe, and it gets the yellow blooms in uh, late winter into spring. That's the one that's good for burns. And you can get those at a lot of local plants and, and nurseries, garden centers around oh, yes. the state. Yes. You just want to make sure you're looking for that one specifically for burn. We we have a couple planted just for backup. Um, oh. if <laughs> we, we, we try and stay pretty well covered, but, you know, it, it's it's a long summer and it's a big sun and someone gets burned at least once a year. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, years ago I worked, um, <laughs> excuse me, I worked for a company that owned golf courses. And by the kitchen, you know, because they had a restaurant there. So by the kitchen, they had an aloe vera plant growing. And so the chefs knew where it was, and they would run out and grab it whenever any of them got a burn. <laughs> now, what about Mormon tea? I hear about that a lot, but I have never... Um, the, the smell of it by itself on the plant has never made me want to say, hmm, I wonder, I should try and chew on that. Oh, I know. You know, Mormon tea is a very... It, it's a... It's a green, uh, spiky shrub that you will see in, in the desert, and it is, it is native. So it has a, a bitter flavor, and it can be roasted and, and ground into a powder, and sometimes it can be used to make a bread or mush. That doesn't sound too appetizing, <laughs> but people have used it to make a tea, a hot tea. And they use it by steeping the green, um, the green leaves in the water. But it tastes better if you kind of roast those stems a little bit first. All, all in the prep work. It is. <laughs> now, the earliest, uh, according to the, the research I have done and seen, the earliest 
signs uh, or archaeological evidence of human farming in Arizona along the Santa Cruz River, dating back over 5,000 years. Um, Yeah. Any idea what they were farming and growing then? Well, you know, another native species that is very nutritious are mesquite, mesquite trees. And so there's, there's several different types, but the one we find here that is native is called a, a velvet mesquite. And so many of us in our landscapes, we have these big, huge, giant mesquite trees. Most of those come from South America, and they do great here. But the ones that were here long ago and are still here um, have very nutritious pods. They're sea pods. You know, the things that we curse because they make a mess in our landscape. They're actually incredibly uh, very uh, nutritious, and we use them to make a flower. And people do it nowadays, and the flower can be used for baking. So you can make things from pancakes and waffles to cakes and cookies using mesquite flour. And we'll have Farmer Greg in at the fourth week in June talking about how uh, you can do that. Nave and have a mesquite mill. You could pick your mesquite pods and bring it to them to mill. I know that there is a mill in Tucson uh, that's open for public use as well. That if you've got a property with a number of mesquite trees on it, you can take those beans, get them ground, and turn them into flour. Basically, flour, you you get it in a clear put it in a glass jar it'll it'll last you a long time it'll last it's high in protein which is also important and you can also mix it with other flowers and you can make breads with it you can really have fun and experiment with it so yeah and yes there are mesquite milling events throughout the southwest uh usually in june more with noelle johnson the arizona plant lady here at rosie on the house right after this Continuing our conversation about desert harvest with Arizona plant lady Noelle Johnson, a horticulturist, an arborist. Uh, you, you listed like six or seven different uh, certifications there at the beginning of the interview. Very well studied in all things plant. And we're talking about things in the desert you can eat. And you were mentioning something about ground cherries. I'm not familiar with that, but I'm very, very curious. I know. When you see the word ground cherry, you're like, what the heck is that? Well, there's another name for it that you probably recognize. It's, it's a tomatillo. You know, it's that little green fruit, and it's native. It's native to the desert. And their fruit, when you see it growing on the plants, encased in like a tan papery sack. So you remove that, and then you have this beautiful green tomatillo inside. Now, you can, uh, you can cook them, and they're delicious, and chop them up and put them into salsa. Uh, but they can also be eaten raw. But I do want to make a point that we're talking about edible parts of different types of plants. Just because one part of a plant is edible, it does not necessarily mean the whole plant is edible. Mm. So with the tomatillo, ground cherry plant, the fruit is edible, but you don't want to eat the leaves. Good point. And when when I hear cherry, I automatically think red, but this is a green fruit I'm looking for. Yes. And then uh, Ocotillo, got to mention those. They, the, the last couple wet, rainy winters have sure made those red blooms on the Ocotillo and, and the green on the leaves, a, a very rich color. 
They're so beautiful. And the green will leaf out again during the monsoon season. But here's a common myth about Ocotillo. People think that they're a cactus. And you can see why. You know, they're very thorny. But they're actually a shrub. Hmm. And their beautiful uh, vermilion, dark orange flowers are actually, they have a lovely tangy flavor, a tangy sweet flavor. And they can be soaked in water. And then they create this really refreshing, cool drink. I didn't know they were a shrub. I thought they were a cactus as well. Good. See, <laughs> always learning something. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> they also, at the end of their life, or you know, they make a great decorative fence. Have you ever seen one of those, Gary, where they've oh, got the, the fence about waist high and it's all the ocotillo spines that they've got yeah. strung vertically? Yeah. Very you nice southwest you, accent. You could do a living fence as well. So you can take living canes, that's what you call the branches of an ocotillo, and plant those in a row, and you can create a living ocotillo fence. Even better. (laughs) Uh, What else are we missing as it comes to uh, desert edibles? Well, this is something that you're going to maybe find in your backyard, and they're not not native, uh, but they're... They're worldwide, and these are edible weeds that you might find in your backyard. And I have three to share with you. The first one is called London Rocket, or it might also be familiar to you as wild mustard. And it's related to broccoli, cauliflower, and kale. And it tastes a little bit like watercress, but with a little more spice. And the young leaves and flower buds are great to use in salads. Wild and, mustard. Yeah, wild okay. mustard. So, you know, look up a picture. Whenever we're talking about these plants, make sure you are absolutely sure that's what you have. Because some plants can look kind of similar and not be the same thing. <laughs> okay, and, so there's one, <laughs> wild mustard. Yeah. The second one is called Purslane. And it's a low-growing weed, but it has these little green succulent leaves. And all parts of it are edible. And you can eat the leaves and the stems and sprinkle them in a salad. Uh, They're absolutely delicious. And the third one is probably a weed that we are all familiar with, um, dandelions. And dandelions, you know, we're familiar. They have the bright yellow a flower, and then it produces that beautiful little globe of seeds that we like to blow. And all parts of dandelions are edible. And we use the leaves in salads or soups. The yellow flowers have kind of a sweet flavor, and you can eat them raw. And the roots of dandelions, you can use them in a soup, like cut them up like a root vegetable. And uh, if that's not enough, you can dry the roots, roast them, and use them to brew a coffee substitute. Good to know. Dandelion root. So you would dehydrate it, dry them out, um, and then boil them in water as a coffee substitute? Yes. Interesting. I'm going to have to try that. So (laughs) this is kind of a last-minute question as we wind down this outdoor living hour. Uh, What's the strangest thing you've eaten out of the wild, Noelle? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Strangest thing out of the (laughs) wild. I ate a uh, I ate a uh, seed pod from um, one of the seeds from a Palo Verde tree. So you don't eat the pod, but you go inside and you actually take out the little seed. 
and they taste a little bit like um kind of like a it, it tastes a little bit like a pea so i have had that Palo Verde pods okay and you've got a couple websites for the listeners I do. If you want to get more into uh, the Edible Desert Garden, there's two websites. One is called fireflyforest.com, and the second is desertharvesters.org. And you can have a lot of fun with this. There are also some really great books out there that you can get on Amazon, and one is called uh, Sonoran Desert Food Plants by Charles Kane. It's Arizona plant lady, Noelle Johnson, that's been spending her Saturday morning with us. Thank you so much for your time and the education on uh, local edible plants. Thank you for having me.